So we are here in a new episode of the podcast History and Politics with Samuel Hammond, which is a, a, a poverty and welfare analyst at the Niskan Center to talk about his piece about the free market welfare state. So how you, you came up with the idea of writing this piece in particular? Oh, I mean, it's something I've had in my mind for a while, um, the compatibility between markets and the welfare state. I think of the, the welfare state, it goes back to this expression that is sometimes attributed to Paul Krugman, but is actually much earlier, um, that the picture we should have of the government is as an, uh, an insurance company with an army. Right? <laughs> that's, what the, that's what governments are. Modern governments are basically big insurance companies. And there's a, a sense in which... You know, the, the, the normal libertarian view of, of welfare as just being about redistribution misses a big component of the insurance function because the insurance function is really about the ex-ante risk of different activities, um, not the ex-post redistribution. Uh, so if you only look at the ex-post, it looks like it's just redistribution, but ex-ante, there's some uh, risk pooling going on. And uh, so I've always understood that, and I want to write a paper uh, making it explicit. Yeah, because you you're you were talking about, for example, like like the Scandinavian countries, and particularly Denmark and, and Sweden, that have um, had much more market reforms. But mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's it's very interesting because I have been reading a little about it, and it was a very complex kind of of. Um, it's it's very curious how, how the process have been done because they mm -hmm. the the market reforms have go from the relatively neoliberal parties to even the social democratic party. So there has been a relative consensus in there. It's that is very quite strange to get in everywhere else. Right. So Right, and that's a that's a point I make in my paper is that um so sometimes as as a liberal, as a neoliberal, um we feel like we're in a minority uh, because the combination of views that say I want a big welfare state but I also want to have very deregulated markets is not a lot of people hold those views basically but partly because people sort along an ideological dimension there are people who are anti-government and people who are pro-government and they don't make a distinction between the welfare state and the regulatory state and so if you're a progressive you want a bigger regulatory state and you also want bigger transfers and if you're a conservative you're the opposite so the i i, I think of it as the orthogonal position it's the if you have a spectrum running from big government to small government it, i take the perpendicular spectrum that says no we can make a distinction between transfers and regulation and we can think about a system that has low regulation but large transfers and the interesting thing is, is that not many people hold that point of view because not many people have that ideology. People sort along more pro or anti-government. But there's a lot. There, when you look at countries in the OECD, more more countries fall in that system than any other system. And so the question is why? Well, it's because politics and outcomes are not about ideology. They're about the bargaining between different parties, right? And so you have a left party and you have a right party and they come to some agreement about how to govern. And 
So the left party has a priority that says we want to protect the economic security of our people. We want to make sure the poor have resources. And then the right wing party says we want our businesses to thrive. We don't want any red tape. Um, and they come to the conclusion, hey, I'll cut the red tape and then we'll we'll transfer the poor some money. <laughs> right? yeah. And so and so and so that so in some ways, my ideology exists. I say in the paper, it exists on, uh, on the boundary and the interface between different ideologies. Yeah, I, I mean, in, in Bolivia, is curious. I mean, I know the Bolivian example because it's closer and, and the news come faster. But the, right. the Bolivian case is very interesting because before Evo Morales, like, and in the in the years before Evo Morales, the, the government that was technical neoliberal. Uh, adapted some some reforms that that uh, some welfare reforms that, that started to to have some traction. But I feel that that sometimes I mean sometimes politics is also ethnic and 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 the issue that that the that Bolivia in particularly has a much more larger ethnic <laughs> indigenous population, and I feel that that that, that made a lot of, of sense. So, so that has to do. You say indigenous. Yes, indigenous. Mm -hmm. So, so a lot of of reivindications that that not necessarily have to do with the welfare state per se. And and that's go to my question of immigration. You you were saying in another interview that 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 the question of immigration is complex because. You said that that uh, high skilled immigrants could could like like be perfectly adapt with a welfare state, but what happens if 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 you know immigrants of sixty we are with low education, you know, and that kind right. of immigrants could it be compatible uh, a neoliberal project with an open borders project in some case with a big welfare state? Right. So there is this difference and. The difference isn't immigrants per se. It is <clears throat> there's a, a stereotype of the welfare state as something that just like provides handouts for people to sit on their on the laurels, right? To sit on the sidelines. And if you have a large influx of low skilled immigrants, even if they aren't, you know, big recipients of welfare. <clears throat> In some ways, the levels of welfare are defined by the median. So anyone who comes in that's below the median will be a net fiscal cost. And, you know, if you look at the U.S. In, uh, situation, for example, the National, um, the, uh, National Academies of Sciences has done a big report on the fiscal cost of immigrants. And there are some fiscal costs, but even, you know, taking the whole portfolio of immigrants to the United States, it's still a net positive because they are delayed from accessing benefits. Um, <clears throat> and when they access benefits, they access them in lower rates than, than citizens. Um, but it's less about the real cost and more about the perception, right? And it's, it's the perception issues become extenuated when, uh, when there are ethnic minorities. So in the United States, it's undeniable that the welfare state is politicized along racial dimensions. And um, you just to look at the, the, the 1990s welfare reform to see that because, because you know, they portrayed welfare recipients as welfare queens and um, images of, you know, black single, single mothers and stuff like that. Um, I think it might be legitimately easier 
in countries that are either more homogenous or so heterogeneous that they're almost homogenous in their heterogeny. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so those are the two like uh, stable equilibria where there's no large uh, subgroup um, that is all or almost all low skill or um, low income. Uh, and indigenous populations are often, unfortunately, fall in that category. They fall in that category in the in Canada, for instance. We we have a reserve system for our indigenous, the First Nations people of Canada, and the reserves are some of the poorest parts of Canada. They have thirty percent unemployment rates. Um, they have rampant drug and alcohol abuse, and um, they're a very easy target for people who oppose welfare per se. Uh, to find images and um, anecdotes to fight the welfare state, because even you know in the U.S. context, for instance, even though uh, you know you often see images of African American families on welfare as uh, used as a, as a as a rhetorical device, <clears throat> the average SNAP recipient is actually white. There's just <laughs> there's just more white people in America. Yeah, yeah uh, that's, that's true. But it doesn't matter. As long as you have a big salient subgroup, you're going to have um, opponents of the welfare state use that group to galvanize opposition. Um, and I, I'm sure it's the same in Bolivia and Peru. Like yeah. if you have a big, a big uh, indigenous population, I'm sure indigenous people. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure those populations have their problems. I'm sure they have had issues integrating, and um, and that for that reason, will probably on net as a, as a, as a subgroup be net fiscal recipients of social services. And so they're an easy target an easy low hanging fruit for opponents of the welfare state to portray, um, the normal recipient of the welfare state. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's really interesting your take. And you also have an, an interesting take on, on health or you were saying, I think, something like that Obamacare was more or less the, the, the healthcare system in, in Switzerland. I'm not an expert in, in healthcare system in Switzerland, but I have heard something like that. That I mean, Switzerland has a very particular kind of, of system that, that it's the, the tradition of pluralism in, in Switzerland has mm -hmm. been probably more influential than, than in other of the countries because of, of, the, of their federalism that has Yeah. make the, 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 the issue of, of the power of the markets and, and, and the power of, of the state acting together in many ways. But, but you, you were saying something that, that the, the, the Switzerland model, this model works for Switzerland because of, of particular uh, capacity. I don't know how to describe it, but... Good government. A, good <laughs> government, uh, yeah. It's... It's because I think cantonal governments have a uh, very, and I once heard in an interview, uh, um, a Swiss was saying about uh, cantonality, that they have a lot identity of their, their canton is kind of their universe. Like a lot right. of, they, they have a lot of value for, for not only their country, but the, the region. In a, in a way, that didn't sound more, more profound. I know that some states have mm -hmm. quite, An identity in the U.S., but but in a way that sounds much more profound, and and their community, and they, 
and it's a very curious way of, of trying to understand things. But but I understand that, that in that process is very difficult to 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 be discussed in the U.S. because in the U.S. as you were saying, it's more like like the the case that it's it's politicized because as right. you said in a, in a previous interview, the, the issue is that that basically Obamacare is a Heritage Foundation initiative. It wasn't single payer. Yeah. It wasn't. Um, no, it was a, <clears throat> he, he came to the negotiating table with a compromise. You know, normally you go to the negotiating table and you say, I want single payer. And then they counter and they say, we want a free market. And then you find the compromise, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but he came with the compromise and Obama was very naive thinking that Republicans, that he could govern as a moderate and Republicans would work with him. Um, but Mitch McConnell said early on, in 2008 that, you know, the, the number one priority of Republicans would be, you know, to make sure Obama was a one-term president and that they'd fight everything that he did. Yeah. So, you know, McConnell played to win. And I think that's actually a deeper commentary on what's wrong with American politics right now is that um, everyone's playing to win, right? As opposed to um, playing within the norms of sportsmanship <laughs> playing by the rules, right? Yeah. Uh, if you, if you stop, if you only focus on playing to win, then you will, you know, you will, um, punch the, uh, soccer player or football player when the referee's not looking. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so that's one thing. The other thing is, yeah, the, this, the, the Obamacare model, the affordable care act, um, the point of that, model and why it was a compromise is because it, it works to preserve the private insurance system. Um, and it does that by um, mandating care, but then providing insurers with large subsidies to cover the sick and the uninsurable. Um, and that requires an individual mandate because without an individual mandate, if you're young and healthy, you would never join in an insurance pool and therefore, the insurance pool will just be all sick people. And and for insurance to work, you have to have a mix of, you know, if, if insurance, for if fire insurance was just people whose houses, houses burned down, there'd be no insurance. You need people whose houses don't burn down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and so they have to mandate that. They mandate that if you're young and healthy, you have to buy insurance. And I think the, I forget right now, but I think the the, the penalty if you don't buy insurance in Obamacare was like, like two hundred dollars or something like that, and maybe five hundred dollars. It wasn't. It, it was on your taxes. It was a penalty. It's a fee. Um, five hundred dollars is not that much money. If you forgot to buy health insurance, you could probably pay two hundred dollars, five hundred dollars. In Switzerland, I think the fee is in the thousands of dollars. And if you fail to to buy insurance and enter the pool, uh, they will go so far as to garnish your wages, right? Right. They will. They will. They will take the weight. They'll take the money right from your bank account. So um, that's just the that's just the way that system has to work. But if you want that system to work, that's what you have to do. And um, you know, if the individual mandate for whatever reason is unconstitutional, or if it's if um, you have a Republican president that just refuses to enforce it because you know you control the executive branch and you don't you don't, you know you just sabotage the system um, at every step, then it won't work. It'll fall apart because you don't have any consensus around that, that being the system you want to have. 
Um, and so that's why I argued before in a different podcast that, you know, in some ways a more market-friendly approach is just to do a public option. Because if you have a big, blunt, stupid public option, like we're just going to publicly provide health care uh, or public health insurance like Medicaid, you know, Medicaid ended up being the most successful part of Obamacare. It was responsible for more than half of the uh, increase in, in coverage. And um, it hasn't had any major complaints. You know, you've had states that have been um, uh, slow to adopt the Medicaid expansion, but um, eventually they've come around. Virginia just came around. Uh, and they're doing it because, you know, they have an opioid epidemic that they need to use Medicaid for. And it just turns out that, like, governments are an army with an insurance company attached. And it just, you know, it, if you recognize that it's pretty simple, it's pretty easy compared to a lot of things government does. Like, I, I don't trust the government to plan an economy, but I can trust the government to look at a normal distribution and and uh, write checks and mail checks to people, right? <laughs> the government is bad at a lot of things, but it's pretty good at just moving money around. And that's a lot of what insurance is. So, so, so my 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 next deck is is about the what everyone is talking about, Casio Cortez, which is the, the the socialists they have one. Basically, socialists have get a moment in the in the U.S. because of 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 single payer and to a less degree, I think, sure. uh, free college. I, I guess that plays more to to more younger people because um, I don't don't. Think that someone who is 50 and having gone to college will right. be that much excited about the idea, but um, but how you see that that play is that to blame to the lack of the welfare state in the US or not completely, but but at least partially. Well, I think America's spot in the Cold War as the main antagonist to the Soviet Union has engendered a deep. Uh, skepticism and fear of anything that sounds like communism or, or socialism. And a lot of the the right in America, the the old right in particular, sort of, you know, is owes its intellectual history to uh, a kind of a kind of uh, intellectualized anti-communism. They just, we are anti-communist. Anything that resembles communism we hate. And so there's Compared to other countries, there's just a stigma attached to the word socialism. So that's the first point. Uh, you know, in, in Canada, we have the New Democratic Party, which is a, a social democrat party. Um, you know, many countries in Europe have uh, explicitly socialist parties. Some have Marxist-Leninist parties. You know, it's not very unusual to have a socialist party. Uh, America is a bit of an exception because the two-party system and because of this anti-communist legacy. The second point I want to make is that uh, Ocasio-Cortez, I think, is actually, in the long run, kind of, if, if you don't like true socialism, if you don't like, uh, you know, nationalizing the means of production, right, that's what socialism is supposed to be, then you should like Ocasio-Cortez, because she's, she's in a way dumbing down, or, or she's defining down the definition of socialism. To her, socialism just means that no one poor should should not have health care. <laughs> yeah. Right? Every country on earth is a socialist country. Um, <laughs> every country in, in Europe is a socialist country by that definition because every country in Europe 
uh, doesn't let their poor go without health care. Um, and so I think she's doing us a favor because she's, she's, def- she's dumbing down the definition of socialism. She says socialism just means, you know, puppy dogs and happiness. <laughs> and I'm fine with that. Yeah. I, I, I honestly, you know, I honestly, yeah, because I exist on this, this, um, interface where I want really deregulated markets, but I also want big public options for insurance. Mm-hmm. I want the Democratic Party to be more like her because I would like the Democrat, Democratic Party to actually, you know, fight for uh, Medicare for all, stuff like that. And I don't, I, I don't know if it's effective to say to, to brand that as socialism because, again, there is this um, fear of socialism in America. Uh, but so I'm not a branding expert, but I would like the Democratic Party to be more left wing in some ways, because <laughs> yeah. because the Republican Party is very 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 right wing, right? Yeah. And I'm because I'm very centrist. I'm I'm more, much more of a moderate. I think you have to have, uh, you know, a a check and balance on the right wing bent of the Republican Party currently. Yeah, I, I agree. And but what do you think about his her her proposal about the universal um, jobs program? It doesn't sound like a like Terrible a right wing version of, of of what of means tested that Republicans say. Yeah. So the jobs guarantee, <laughs> um, uh, the job guarantee is a, a dumb idea. I I just want to say that it's, it's not. It's just dumb. It's just a it's a a bad idea. Um, there's and I think this is also goes to the point about the dumbing down of socialism is that socialism is apparently just endorsing things that FDR did, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, no, FDR had this thing called the uh, WPA, um, and the WPA employed, I think, upwards of a few million Americans uh, during the pre-war period. And they did lots of things, like they built libraries, and you know, during the Great Depression, they, you know, it was a way to employ people during during the Great Depression. And at the time, you know, America was basically unregulated. <laughs> you could hire a bunch of nobodies to build a library or to build an interstate or something like that. And you know, nowadays it's it's just in, un, it's infeasible it's just inconceivable that you you could have you could mobilize you know five million americans in the recession to uh to do really productive labor through the government because you know what 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 are they going to do are they going to build bridges are they going to build hydro dams like that takes a lot of certifications (laughs) um more likely they're going to be doing make work projects um moreover uh you know, there is this, there is this kind of consensus between Republicans and Democrats around workfare, and this is one thing, one reason that America looks different than other uh, European welfare states um, is this obsession with tying everything to work, and uh, Democrats are completely complicit in that because they believe that um, 
if they tie things to work, they can get more concessions of Republicans, right? And so if you look really closely at what a job guarantee is in practice, it's a way to eliminate the welfare state and replace it with a workfare program, right? It, it, instead of having welfare, instead of having a, a cash transfer or unemployment insurance benefit or um, the earned, earned income tax credit, you will you know, be required to work for your money. And that was the way FDR originally sold the WPA. He said, we don't believe in the dole. We, we don't want people on the dole. Uh, and, you know, the original jobs guarantee was sold using a lot of the populist rhetoric, the anti, the austerity rhetoric, uh, the anti-welfare rhetoric of, of the right. Um, and I, I think it's not surprising that uh, the Democratic Party has embraced job guarantees in a way that they they'd never embraced universal basic income, even though the UBI movement is bigger and louder. And it's because UBI is a genuinely universal program. It's a, you know, and it's cash, and it's radical in the way that it doesn't require anything. To, you know, it's unconditional. Um, and so they've, what they've managed to do is take something very, very, uh, uh, reactionary, which is a, uh, work requirement program for your welfare, you know, attaching a work requirement to your benefit. And they've managed to repackage it as something radical and progressive is, you know, we're going to guarantee your employment and how that is actually operational uh, or operational operationalizable, I don't quite know, but it's not surprising from the sort of class dynamics of the Democratic Party that they are more willing to uh, require welfare recipients to to work for their for their welfare than um, than embracing actual universal programs as a as a principle. So the the issue about the the UB, UBI, it's a, it's a very curious idea because their most hardcore opponents are both libertarians of the more Rothbardian strain and Marxist, and it's it's very funny the the, the, the kind of convergence of, of, of the of the well, libertarians are Marxists huh? basically. <laughs> yeah. Libertarians and Marxists have more in common than people realize. Yeah. They're both uh, they're both sort of um, uh, radically idealistic and utopian and uh, very rationalistic. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot they have a lot more in common than they think. You know, public choice economics is essentially just a Marxian analysis of the ruling class. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it, it was the the, the curious uh, the dynamics that that sometimes go around a lot of, of different issues are, are quite curious because for example the Brian Kaplan has had a lot of of I mean I, I am surprised by the kind of success that he has had. I mean even in Peru there have been like like blogs writing about his last book. I, I mean he, he's a very radical authoritarian. He's he's an anarchist authoritarian he and and the BBC quotes him it's it's kind of of surprising that that he has come that far and, and yeah it's it's kind of I'm not surprised. No, Brian is a very rigorous person. You know he 
the case against education um, it has some of the you know most thoughtful interdisciplinary you know um, uh, uh, conjoining of different literatures to to answer a very specific question and he does it very carefully you know he, he comes to sometimes radical conclusions but and I disagree with him on a lot of things I, but he's a very thoughtful researcher and deserves to have a lot more attention. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I like the book too, but, but the, I was kind of surprised. I didn't told that, that in Peru someone will review it. Yeah, because, I mean, here, all books you have to buy it in Amazon, and it, it, it's quite expensive, plus it it takes a lot of time since it arrives in Peru. But anyway, it, it was really a, a surprise kind of, of that. But my, my last question was, how how you see the, the the kind of of convergence? I don't know how you, you what libertarianism was some years ago. I don't know how to neoliberalism is becoming something else, and 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 I, I don't know how to, how to call it because uh, Joseph Heath, I think, was your introduction to to economics, and he has a very kind of 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 interesting take about about the economy and how it works and mm -hmm. and I feel that that sometimes particularly in libertarian circles people think that 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 neoliberalism is, is very moderate and and but in a lot of ways I mean even if if business are not necessarily ideological for example in the in the war that has been when when it was the 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 countries that one that didn't want to to accept the the Oberfell decision that uh, against gay rights and a lot of corporations uh, jumped against them and it was kind of a moment where it's is becoming something of of which was was kind of more clear in, in Europe the the the, 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 the more radical right and not only the the, the, the neo Nazis but 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 other kinds of strains even that 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 are not mm -hmm. explicitly racist at least. But but the, the still had some kind of, of 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 fight. For example, I think in in Italy they want to ban working on, on Sundays to in order to people to go to church, things like that. So the, this kind of of, of 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 fights between the the, the right and, and capitalism are, are quite a very a very curious development. But but it's becoming much more clear and, and much now that that Trump is becoming much more anti-trade. Uh, as his presidency goes. So, what's the question? So, <laughs> how, how you see this this kind of development? Because for for a long time, I think that that the particular libertarians had had too much hope in right. in, in conservatives, uh, not only the uh, the modern the modern mercantilist yeah. swing in the in the right. Um, yeah. Well, I think I, I see it. I, I I I hesitate to read too much into Trump because I think he is a kind of a kind of fluke um, and I don't, I don't like to you know it's possible to have grand trends and it's possible to have um, very very lucky outcomes and Trump is even within his orbit Trump as a person and as an operator is very unique and you could run that experiment a thousand times and he wouldn't he wouldn't happen more than once or twice right yeah so, um, but, you know, Republicans, 
haven't really been, you know, they have this reputation as a party of free trade, but Republicans really have been more more uh, trade skeptical than people realize, and they have that they have a, a kernel of trade skepticism that goes back a long time, um, and uh, a kernel of kind of uh, exceptionalism, American exceptionalism, and isolationism, and Trump has somehow merged the two, so. Uh, you know, the Republicans were never a neoliberal party. I, I, I really don't think so. I think the the Democrats have been. Bill Clinton was. Um, Hillary Clinton would have been. Democrats are much more pragmatic, much more focused on what the evidence says about trade, and uh, much more see markets as a tool to different social ends. Whereas the Republican Party has been more or less co-opted by uh, a combination of business and corporate interests and um, an ideological faction or several factions from gun rights to the Koch brothers. And, um, and that's, you know, that's under the banner of the conservative movement. And I, I don't think Trump has really, Trump has not really disrupted that edifice. Trump you know, there's a lot of people who are who are uh, appeasing Trump because they want things done um, and they want to be on his good side. But when Trump leaves, the Republican Party is going to go right. I think it's going to snap right back to being a pretty conservative movement style party. And um, you know, you might see some lingering stuff. There's there's lots of things where you can portray you know a, a, a hawkish stance to China as being pro trade in the long run because what you're saying is that I for you know fair trade not free trade and whatever um, I think the anti immigrant stance is probably more permanent uh, because I've just witnessed a lot of um, conservative writers and Republican uh, operators shift dramatically in immigration and, and, you know, feel more comfortable expressing skepticism about immigration. Um, so I think that will be more permanent. But on the other hand, if Trump wasn't in office, if any other Republican was in office, we would have a, a probably an immigration deal. We'd have a DACA deal. We'd have, um, you know, the beginning of a comprehensive immigration reform. So... You know, I, I'm of the opinion that when Trump leaves office, a lot of a lot of this will snap back to reality. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think that people are, are realizing like now some things of, of, of the the 90s were a wild time, but but in many ways the 90s were a, a kind of convergence of many many curious things that 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 now play I think for example the the fact that ESA has been powering by by graphics and, and kind of customer service in some ways that that that, that beyond the, the what usual is or the organization of socialist parties that are quite of secret meetings and things like that that, that I don't think DSA is interested in. and yeah there are it's very well different. the DSA is irrelevant. Yeah. The, 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 the DSA, the DSA is the the. It's it, it says everything about what's like wrong with how America does politics. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. 
the political parties in America are so weakened that um, you can almost be a kind of like schism and be stronger than the party itself. Uh, you know, you hear that they have 50,000 members now, something like that. But, you know, what does that mean? All they're good for is protesting uh, Trump administration officials at, at restaurants. <laughs> what have they done? They're not an actual party apparatus. What we need to do is revive the actual party. And the Democratic Party is in shambles. Um, and the Republican Party is actually kind of in shambles, too, because it's, it's sort of playing second fiddle to uh, the ideological third-party organizations, the nonprofits and the, and the super PACs. So I think, uh, I think America will continue to be um, chaotic until we fix the party system. Yeah, that's that's probably true, and I, yeah, I was thinking about how, I mean, the the term neoliberalism means so many things, and 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 it probably is going to mean a lot of much more things in the future. But, but it's it's certainly clear that now there is, it's very difficult to call now the the GOP neoliberal, that, that doesn't sound no, like, nothing, like, nothing like it or, or, or much of the European right also, because, um, you, you said that, which goes, which, which goes to show like, like Trump has been a austerity minded, uh, he's been the, the, the sort of populist that tries to cut welfare. You know, he wants to cut Medicaid. He, uh, you know, he wants to restrict immigrant access to social, uh, services. That goes to show that every time anyone has ever written a paper or thesis saying that, that neoliberalism means, you know, impoverishing the poor or uh, cutting welfare, that they were just dead wrong. They're, they're so wrong. If, if neoliberalism means free trade, right now the free trade wing of, the, of American politics is the pro-welfare wing. <laughs> <laughs> right now the anti-welfare wing is the anti-trade uh, almost, you know, almost like Viktor Orban style ethno nationalist <laughs> wing, right? Yeah, it's yeah, it's so it, neoliberalism was always a, as a as a pejorative. Um, the lazy academics' way of being insightful. If you don't have any true insights, you just find something that's happening in the world that you think is bad, you just call it neoliberal. And, you know, you're, you're Peruvian. Uh, I think Latin America has produced a lot of PhDs with a lot of really bad dissertations that just have the word neoliberal over and over and over again. Yeah. Well, I think that with that inside we go. <laughs> Uh, so, well, where do people go find you, your, your work and this kind uh, of Find stuff? me on, on Twitter, at Hayman Cheese. Yeah. H-A-M-A-N-D-C-H-E-E-S-E. -E -E -E. Hayman Cheese. Well, thank you. So, Thanks, Camilla. Yeah.